to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. It's been a great morning. I'm so glad that you're with us today. And if you will, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 today. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're in the Dear God series, and we are down to the last two weeks today. The question is, how can we know the Bible is true? Now, I hope that you have your Bible with you today. And if you don't, there are Bibles on the bottom of some of the seats that are around you. And I hope that you take a copy of God's Word. And uh, I also hope that you're taking notes today because it'll be an important thing to write down four statements that I'm going to make during the course of this message that are really life-changing statements when it comes to the subject of the Bible, the Word of God, and when it comes to helping others know about the hope that you have in the Scriptures that have changed your life. And so we want to be able to answer that question in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 16 through 21, how can we know the Bible is true? Let's read the text right off the bat and, uh, and start right there. Let's stand together if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is the apostle Peter who's writing in the midst of uh, persecution, tribulation. Uh, the Roman Empire was about to try to tear the Christianity apart. All kinds of rumors, all kinds of scheming is going on. Uh, because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church came alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so people were being won to Christ right and left. It was just amazing what was happening in the church. But on the outside of the church, pressure from culture was taking place. Not unlike today, by the way. And Peter is writing about the validity of the message of Jesus Christ. Here's how, here's how valid. Here's how, how convinced we are that Jesus is a life changer. And here's why you can be convinced as well is what he's saying. Beginning in verse 16, it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we came, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Kind of walk through that very slowly with me. We were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus Christ. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus and seeing it and hearing the voice of heaven and all of the above. It says in verse 19, so we now have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this, first of all, that, all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. You understand what he's saying is men did not write the Bible. God used men to pen holy inspired writings. He said, no, no scripture, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There's a lot here to unpack. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us see what Peter is writing and what it means to us today and how to give an answer for the hope inside of us to those who wonder, why do you believe the Bible? 
while you read the Bible. Father, help us to walk out of here today with an absolute confidence that the scriptures, the Bible that we hold in our hands is your word for us forever. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. amen. All right, please be seated if you would. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago I asked you not to amen when I was preaching, and I'm, I'm just wanting you to know that rule is off the table now because <laughs> we were dealing with a sensitive subject of transgenderism two weeks ago, and I wanted to make sure that we handle that politely and gently. But today, uh, I'm going to ask you to say amen when it's appropriate and uh, because we're going to make some really important points today. About 17 years ago, a man named Vody Bauckham preached a message that was on the subject of the Bible and how we could know the Bible was true. It was a powerful message, and uh, I think even today, some of what he said then reverberates through my heart when I am on the subject of the Scripture. And the world has changed in the last 15 and 16 years since I heard that message, and today we're dealing with a very, very skeptical world. Now, I want you to pay attention in a different way today. I want you to pay attention not only for your own spiritual good and for your own spiritual confidence in the Bible, but I want you to pay attention for how you will give an answer to people that are those skeptics, that wonder, why do you believe the Bible? How can you believe a book that's at least 2,000 years old, and how can you say it's relevant to the complexities of our world today? How can you do that? And I'm going to give you four answers that you can give them today as we walk through this text one year ago, Gallup poll did a wide poll of Americans and compared it to one they did in 2015. And the question they asked was about the subject of the Bible. How do people in America believe the Bible? And what level do they believe the Bible is the Word of God? Now, 15, 20 years ago, the answer was that 30% of our population believed that the Bible was truly inspired by God and perfect and applicable to everything in life. It was about 50% of the population that said, well, we believe it's an inspired book. It's a religious book. We believe God was involved in writing it, but we reserve the interpretation to how we want to interpret it. And then only 20% said, oh, it's a book of fables. It's just a bunch of lies that someone assembled with moral lessons involved in that. Well, the, the poll that was done last year almost reversed those numbers, so no one's surprised. Today in America, 30% of those polled said that they believe that the book is a book of fables. The Bible is nothing but myths and nothing but moral uh, reasoning that people back in that day gave. 50%, still that same 50%, says, well, we believe it's inspired by God in some ways, inspirational in some degree, but we reserve interpretation for ourselves. And only 20% say that the Bible is the Word of God. It's authoritative. It's perfect in every way. It speaks in timeless truths to everybody in every culture. You say, well, that's only a, 20, a 10 percent difference in what it was 15 years ago, but that is a dramatic shift in our nation over how people view the Bible. Today, it's estimated that one in eight people have a biblical worldview. That is, they look at the world, at culture, through the lens of Scripture. And the rest look at the world through the lens of culture, what they read on social media, what their friends say, what they read in media or watch on a silver screen or a computer. That's quite a dramatic shift. If you wonder why our world is so different than it was five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, then, then you have your answer right now. Because what's changed is the way people view the world, whether through the lens of Scripture or through the lens of culture. 
So why do we hold out for the Scripture being the Word of God? Why do we say we ought to look at the world through the lens of Scripture instead of any other way? How can we be confident and how can we explain to other people that we have confidence that is reasonable in the Bible today? I want to give you four reasons how we defend our belief in the Bible and what anchors us there. And it's, uh, it's, it's four reasons that you can give to others that they can also consider and embrace the Scriptures for themselves if they will. So are you ready? Statement number one I'm going to give you out of the four statements based on the Scripture that we just read. The first one is, the Bible is a collection of verified eyewitness accounts. Verified eyewitness accounts. When someone says, why do you believe the gospel of John? And you can very quickly say, well, it's based on eyewitness accounts of when Jesus Christ walked on the earth. And someone might say, well, I don't really agree with that. And the next question is, well, were you there? Somebody was. Somebody saw and somebody recorded what Jesus said and did 2,000 years ago on the planet. Now, now, Peter says this in verse 16. Would you look at the verse again? For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Nobody was working behind the curtain trying to write things to make you believe something today that was not true. We didn't believe those cleverly devised tales, and that's not what we're holding as our belief system. But we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what I want you to know today about this eyewitness thing. Scripture is a collection of historical eyewitness accounts. Everything you hold in this Bible is verified by people who were alive and who saw what was said and what was done and who can verify that. And we have that verification in Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you, do you value eyewitness accounts today? Do we as a culture value eyewitness accounts? And I would say that we unequivocally value those. Few things are considered more reliable. In a court case, for example, when a crime has been committed and you have some circumstantial evidence and then you have one testimony or another and then all of a sudden they call an eyewitness up and the eyewitness says, this is what I saw, this is where I was, this is my perspective of what went on. And someone said, all right, that changes the whole game. Because all of a sudden, someone who saw what happened is now talking to us, and we can get to the bottom of the case. And that's especially powerful when multiple eyewitnesses say the same thing. Now, that's what the Bible is. It's all about eyewitness account. Now, let me take you back and give you an example of that. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and also the book of Acts, is one of those that goes to painstaking detail to help us know this is based on what we saw. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And here's what he's saying. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Do you notice these words here? We're going to give you an account. It's a historical document. It's handed down from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. Before I wrote this down, I made sure all these eyewitnesses aligned in what they said. 
to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. I love this opening to the Gospel of Luke because it says, I'm not just writing down some stuff and I'm kind of remembering back when Jesus was here. While Jesus was here, I wrote down everything he said and did in consecutive order confirmed by other eyewitnesses so that you might have an exact account of the life of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is not a novel. This is not a fairy tale. It is a historical document and a collection of historical documents verified by eyewitnesses. Now, Luke's not through because he writes the book of Acts as well. And in Acts chapter 1, he does almost the same exact thing. Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen... To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, and see this next slide, by many convincing proofs. Everything he said, we could verify. Everything he did, others saw. Appearing to them, plural, over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So the scripture is a collection of historical eyewitness accounts. Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us in the book of Acts. But I want to go further. Because one eyewitness is good, but multiple eyewitnesses who see the same thing and say the same thing is even better, right? If five people tell me that I did something yesterday that I don't recall doing, I might need to believe the five people who all saw what they tell me that I did. It's a verifiable kind of thing. Notice that as we read these verses, you see the words we, we saw, we were eyewitnesses. These are, these are evidences of corroborating testimony. They all align in the same way. Years ago, there was a show called CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. Anybody remember that show? I mean, it's still going on today, I'm sure. But it was all about getting to the scene of the crime. It was all about finding the evidence this, this way or that way, getting DNA, interviewing eyewitnesses. And of course, the real game changer is when you saw somebody who was an eyewitness and they gave you an account, everything else lined up, all the circumstantial evidence lined up, the DNA lined up, everything lined up. The prize was an eyewitness account. And that's what you have here. You have the word eyewitness. Now, in the scripture, eyewitness is more than just someone that saw an event. It means not just an observer, but someone who was deeply involved behind the scenes in what all was unfolding. In this case, these were disciples who followed Jesus for those three years that he was on the earth. One of those guys was John. Not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, John the apostle. And he writes in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, something similar to what we've read. I want you to notice what he said and how detailed he is as an eyewitness that verse says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, so first of all with the ears, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. How many times did this guy need to say it? We saw it, we heard it, we touched it, it was manifested to us. Then he said again, it was manifested to us, the word of life is manifest. I mean, this guy was a convinced witness of all that Jesus said and did. So you have not only eyewitness accounts and this collection of 
verified documents, but you also have eyewitness accounts verified by other eyewitnesses. You say, well, those guys were followers of Jesus, so of course they all said the same thing. But then we are introduced to a man named Saul. We know him now as Paul because he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, who was a skeptic until that moment, said this. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, was, uh, that he was rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, so multiple eyewitnesses. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of them who remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, you catch what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to know that, that as I write this account of Jesus' resurrection, that not only am I an eyewitness, not only was the disciples, the group of disciples, an eyewitness, but I want you to know 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Most of them are still now here even as I write. So Paul is saying, basically, I'm going to write this document and most of the people who saw Jesus rise from the dead can validate this and verify this. So it's multiple eyewitness accounts that I'm speaking about. Now, most of 500, if I say most of 500 are still remaining today, at least 300 people is what we conclude. So 300 people who saw Jesus rise from the dead are still there when Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. How do you write an account of a supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ unless it's true when 300 people are still alive who know all about it? What we have in our Bible it's not just some theory, some philosophy. When someone says, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And you say, well, hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Who are you to deny that he rose from the dead? Most of the people that I talk to who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ are so far removed from that event, from that time, from the knowledge of those eyewitnesses, that they have no real idea what they're talking about. All they're saying is, I just kind of refuse to believe it. But Paul said, hundreds saw him and can validate my account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, what makes it into your Bible today, into the canon of Scripture, is this kind of truth. No fables, no fairy tales, no moral lessons that are just kind of out floating out there. Everything that you have in your Bible is based on all that we've been saying over the last few moments. Now, I know there are people out there that say, well, you know, I believe that there are conspiracy theorists out there and people who had a conspiracy to corrupt the Bible so that what we have today is really a product of that kind of corruption. Those who wanted to change whatever happened in the beginning and insert their own truths, their own ideas in there. And so I believe that's what happened, some will say. For example, some conspiracy theorists say that Jesus actually got married and had a number of children. And certain cults say that those children are still alive today and they're the head of the cults that they lead. That's convenient, right? I mean, one of Jesus' grand, 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 grandchildren. Others today in this highly immoral culture say that Jesus was an active homosexual. Now, they have evidence for that, they say. And how convenient for them, that is, if it were true so that they could support their own lifestyle, and on and on and on. Conspiracy theorists try to have an agenda and write that agenda in to what we know to be the Scripture 
that's unchangeable and unchanged from the beginning. The truth is, nobody in Jesus' day disputed the scriptures that we have right now. Nobody in Jesus' day disputed the resurrection of Jesus. Nobody in Jesus' day disputed the miracles. Nobody said Lazarus did not get raised from the dead by Jesus because Lazarus stood right in front of them and said, hey, here I am alive after being dead four days. Nobody disputed it in that day because it was real and multiple eyewitnesses saw what Jesus Christ did on the planet. Now, others allege this. Others say, well, overzealous monks over the years got together and they decided to change the words of Scripture to fit what we have today. According to Vody Bachman, there's three reasons that can't be true. Let me give you those three reasons very quickly. First of all, consider the manuscripts. The manuscripts we have of the original documents, we don't have the originals, we have immediate copies of those. Those manuscripts number more than 6,000 in the New Testament alone. 6,000 manuscripts that were written just a few years after all these accounts that we're reading about, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus walking on the planet, all the miracles he did and so forth, we have 6,000 of them. You say, well, how does that compare to other historical documents? I, I've got a sheet of paper with me here, and it's called Ancient Manuscript Comparison Charts. There are 6,000 that validate the New Testament that were written less than 100 years after the actual event. If you want to talk about Aristotle for a moment, there are only 49 documents validating his existence on the planet. They were written 1,400 years after he walked on the earth. If you want to talk about Julius Caesar, only 10 documents survive, and they were written 900 years after Julius Caesar walked on the earth. And then Plato, only seven documents, 900 years they were written after he was on the planet. And the New Testament has 6,000 documents, 6,000 manuscripts of all that went on and they are all in alignment that is they all agree with each other it's really amazing how many manuscripts we have and the age of the manuscripts that we have then there are the language issues the language issues by the way if it's overzealous monks wanted to change any of the words of luke or john or matthew they would have to find all six thousand of those manuscripts and somehow change them all without letting anybody else know about it and put them back where the manuscripts go I think that'd be kind of difficult just a few hundred years after Christ. There's the language issues as well. Jesus said, take it to the nations, and that's exactly what the New Testament church did. The different languages that were the first languages that recorded the Scripture after the Greek, which are 6,000 manuscripts of those, are Syrian, Coptic, and Latin. And there are 19,000 copies of these. These monks, if they wanted to change them, would not only have to change the 6,000 original manuscripts and immediate copies, they would have to find every one of the Syrian, Coptic, and Latin manuscripts and change all 19,000 of them. In other words, 25,000 manuscripts would have to be changed for them to have their way in changing the Scripture. And then the early church fathers is another factor. Early church fathers are those early leaders of the New Testament church, and they wrote huge commentaries and attestations of what the church taught and what the Bible taught. And we can actually assemble 95% of the New Testament words by looking at the early church fathers. So these overzealous monks would have to not only change the 6,000, not only the 19,000, but they'd also have to go find all the writings of the early fathers and change all of those and make them all align in the same way 
to bring some sort of corruption to the New Testament text. I do not believe that that happened. I do not believe they could do that. And no one knows about it. They never told anyone. They never got caught during a time when every word was written by hand with no way of communicating over distances or coordinating this massive effort. And my question is, what would a reasonable person say about overzealous monks trying to change the Bible? And I think they're going to have to conclude that would be impossible. And on top of that, this was done during the Middle Ages, which we would call the Dark Ages. That's when it was alleged that these overzealous monks made these changes. The Dark Ages took place after the collapse of the Roman Empire, an age of barbarianism and war and just barely able to survive. That's what it was for those several hundred years, the worst possible environment for corrupting a biblical text. In brief, it is impossible that all these manuscripts would be changed. We have, based on our documents, on our manuscripts, on our eyewitness accounts, a pure word of God. So important for us to know that. Now, that was first point. We have a collection of documents that evolve eyewitness accounts. Number two, you write down number two. The Bible records the miraculous, indisputable transformation of people. No other book in the world details life change like the Bible does. No other book says this person was dead, now they're alive. This person was blind, and now they see. This person was deaf, and now they hear. But the Bible details this incredible life change. And Peter writes about this amazing change with, with Jesus himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory, Peter said, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the fact that Jesus was transfigured. In other words, these disciples saw Jesus in glorified form during this time on the mountaintop. They saw the visible splendor of the divine majesty, they said. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Matthew writes it this way. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Notice, multiple witnesses. We saw him. We were there on the holy mountain. They all saw and they all heard the same thing of this amazing transformation. Jesus was transfigured, but people were transformed. All through the ministry of Jesus, you see people being transformed. In fact, the gospel is a catalog of impossible things that took place because of Jesus. He healed instantaneously and with a word. People who were blind from death uh, blind from birth or deaf from birth. He cast out demons, in some cases hundreds of demons, and healed those with deathly illnesses. He took command over nature. He calmed the storms. He walked on water. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. These are undeniable accounts that are historical and multiple eyewitness verified. These are facts of what Jesus did on the planet there is no dispute in anybody of that era that Jesus did any of these things. And then what about Saul of Tarsus, the most vehement objector we have recorded in the Scripture, a religious terrorist at the very least. And he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and say, I'm convinced Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I will follow him until the day I die. And he did. Amen. The Bible records miraculous, indisputable transformation of people. So when someone says, why do you believe the Bible? I would say, first of all, it contains multiple eyewitness accounts 
that are, that are historically factual. Number two, that it records life transformation in different individuals' lives that can only happen by the hand of God. And then number three, I would say the Bible records prophecies given and fulfilled supernaturally over hundreds of years. So it's not just the eyewitness accounts. It's not just the life transformation that was recorded. It's also prophecy given over a space of several hundred years about Jesus and fulfilled by Jesus. This is amazing. Notice what Peter says here in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now you know how this works. The Old Testament prophet would give a prophecy about something that was virtually impossible to be fulfilled years and years down the road. Now the, the, the law was, the real was, if a prophet falsely prophesied for a short-term kind of event, he would be stoned, he would be put to death. The reality was only effective prophets lived very long, right? Only those prophets that really spoke from God lived and were speaking much. These guys spoke about events not only immediate, but hundreds of years down the road. And when they were fulfilled, in most cases by Jesus Christ, then they were called the prophetic word made more sure. A prophetic word came from a prophet. It was recorded it was watched for, or looked for, and when it came to pass, it was the prophetic word made more sure. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. You look at the Old Testament, you see the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament, and you have that perfect fulfillment. And sometimes people look at the Old Testament and say, can we really trust the Old Testament? And I just wanted to let you know that a professor named Robert Dick Wilson of Princeton University back in the 1920s and 1930s made this statement. He said, I have come to the con conclusion, conviction, that no man knows enough to attack the veracity of the Old Testament. Every time when anyone has been able to get together enough documentary proofs to undertake an investigation, the biblical facts and the original text have victoriously met the test. It's a theologian. This is an expert who said, there is no disputing the Old Testament. Now, you know, when Christmas time comes along, we talk about the Christmas prophecies, right? We talk about how Jesus came and he was the Messiah. And we always tie those together to help you know. This is not just a group of people saying, hey, let's lift this one man up. It's all about him being God in human flesh, right? We also talk about the crucifixion prophecies. Did you know in Psalm 22, the details about the crucifixion of Jesus were foretold before crucifixion had ever been invented by the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus was crucified, he referred back to that in Psalm 22, that the prophetic word made more sure. And the Bible records all of these. Do you know that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies about his coming? And some say as many as 450 prophecies regarding his coming and his messianic fulfillment. If I'm looking at this Bible objectively and see prophecy given and then fulfilled, I have only one conclusion to make about the matter. I'm going to believe what I read in the pages of the Scripture Amen. because they're validated and verified. Amen. So number four, number four, the Bible leads us to logically conclude that it is divine in origin. Now, Peter ultimately wasn't a theologian. Peter wasn't a much learned man. Peter was, what was Peter? Peter was a fisherman. I mean, how can you be anything more practical than that, right? He's a fisherman. He needed things explained to him, sometimes several times by Jesus, sometimes several times by other people. 
But here's what Peter said at the conclusion of his text here. He said, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's his conclusion. By the way, Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, nearly every one of them, they died for the testimony of their faith. Now, I've not sat in Peter's shoes or John's shoes or James' shoes, but I would say this, that if I was just pushing a lie, if I was pushing a false testimony and it came down to either dying or being released upon recanting my testimony of Jesus, if it weren't true, I would recant real quick. These guys went to their grave saying, it's true, I can't change it, it's what truth is, I'm convinced. If you need to put me to death, put me to death. So here's Peter saying, this is the logical conclusion of what truth really is. And Peter said it this way. He said, I've got the prophetic word made more sure. Paul said it a different way. He said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, I've had conversations in recent weeks with people who want to talk about the Bible with me. And one of the things that I've heard them say is this. But the Bible was written by man, and what is written by man can't be trusted. And my response is, then what do you trust? Because everything that you read is written by a man. Some of the same people that say this to me believe everything they read on the Internet or social media. Oh, I read about it on social media, but I don't believe the Bible because it was written by men. I'm saying, can you believe anything then on the planet? The textbooks you had when you were in school were written by men. All the media that we have today were written by men and women. Everything we have in our hands is written by somebody that was human in form. But that's what's different about the Bible. Peter said that men moved by the Holy Spirit, not just men with an agenda, not just men with some idea of where they wanted to steer people, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Then there are others that say, I'm a scientific thinker. Unless you can prove it scientifically, I don't believe the Bible. And whenever you think about what science is, science must be observable, repeatable, and measurable. And using science, you can't even prove who won the Super Bowl last year. But you will take eyewitness accounts into, into consideration, won't you? Someone was there, and they saw it. So in short, I'll sum it up. I believe the Bible because it's, compromise, it's comprised, excuse me, not compromised, it's comprised of verified eyewitness accounts, that's number one. Number two, miraculous events of supernatural transformation. Number three, prophecies given about and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And then number four, additional evidence allowing a logical mind to conclude divine origin rather than human origin. And Peter is one of those logical minds that concluded that and was willing to die for his faith. One of the greatest stories of a moment of decision was uh, the story of a guy named Billy Graham. Billy Graham researched the Bible in every way he could. There were a few doubts remaining in his mind about the Bible. And uh, he got out into a a field out out in the country by himself. And he said, God, if you're going to use me to preach the gospel to the nations because God was already using him in a big way, I need to know that what I'm preaching when I say the Bible says is true. I need to know. And almost everything I've read gives me a logical conclusion that it's not written by men, but it was 
written by inspiration of God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote as they were being led by God. I've got a few little questions that I can't seem to get the answer to. What do you want me to do, God? And he said in that moment of prayer, God came to him in a very convicting way and said, there are some parts of your belief that you're just going to have to believe. You're just going to have to trust me. If you could trust me with the other 99%, can you not trust me with the one? And Billy Graham said, I came to the conclusion right then and there, I can trust him with the 1% that my logical mind just can't wrap around. Billy Graham's ministry started in that, at that moment, at that time. If you're familiar with Billy Graham, you know that he preached the gospel to hundreds and thousands of people in stadiums all over the world, and his most frequent phrase was, the Bible says, the Bible says. And he preached it with power and with authority, and hundreds and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. When I'm conversing with a person, I try to gently say this to them. If you reject the Bible, it's not because of a lack of evidence. It's not because there's no record or corroborated eyewitness accounts. It's not because you're too intelligent or too wise or too educated. It's because you're either unaware of all the evidence of divine authorship of Scripture or you're unwilling to consider it. It's one of those two things. You're either unaware or you're unwilling. This is not an argument we have with people that are not believers. It's confidence. It's not arrogance. It's patience, not impatience. It's prayerful, not prideful. We want them to see that the Bible has changed our lives and the truths of Scripture can change their lives if they would just put their faith and trust in the God who wrote them. If all these things are true that I've said today, if this is so, we must embrace the Bible's superiority and the Bible's author, which is what I ask you to do every week at the end of our service. Embrace the truth of Scripture. Embrace the author of Scripture. Trust Him with your life. Today at the end of our service, I want you to know we're ready to talk about these kinds of things, these big decisions about trusting Scripture and trusting Christ. Maybe you've never trusted Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Hundreds, even thousands saw him rise from the dead. It's undeniable that he did that. It's undeniable that he gave the offer of eternal life. The question is, will you receive the, the, the offer of eternal life? Today at the end of our service, I invite you to three things. Number one, to the decision stations where we have people that would love to have a conversation with you, answering any question you have, helping you in the days ahead in any way you need. Secondly, I invite you to come to guest reception room right outside the center exit doors. There's a glass room across the hallway, and, and I, I would love to meet you and just welcome you to our church, and thank you for coming today. Thirdly, I'm going to ask you to invite somebody else to bring with you next week as I talk about culture versus Christianity. It's a big deal. How do we live in a culture that is pushing the opposite way to what we know the Scripture says? How do we live that well? I ask you to invite someone to come back with you next week. Let's stand together and we'll close right now. Father, I am so thankful for every person in this room today for their time, their attention. And Lord, my prayer is that as they walk out of here, they will have a higher degree of confidence in your word, the scriptures. Father, I also pray that you will give them the ability to share with others why they believe the truth of scripture. And Father, if it's true, help us to reach the logical conclusion that we need to pattern our lives after you and after these words. So Father, today I pray you'll bring a new sense of conviction that the Bible says what it says for us. Thank you, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you. Have a wonderful day.